Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. You know, I think for today, one of my thoughts were, you know, I really want to make sure that there, if there is somebody out there with a concussion, that they're sort of, you know, there's something they can listen to that says, oh my God, I'm not alone. Yeah. Like I'm thinking of someone in my mind right now who I've been talking to recently and just, I think she's really struggling because I think she's going through all the same things that I went through, but she feels like she's alone. And I felt that for a long time. And I just had this repetitive cycle that, oh my God, like I had the thing, which was suddenly I'm crying in a parking lot because I can't find my keys. And as you know, that was sort of the, like, I'm so far unmoored from the shore. Yeah, yeah. Then I had the thing, the pain caused by the realization of the thing, which is I had the secondary effect of, holy shit, I'm damaged goods. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And yes, I'm aware that I have my late night FM DJ voice in full effect. This is what happens when I travel. I have lost my voice as I often do when I travel overseas. And um, here we are. So uh, this week, I am so pleased to introduce to you a conversation that I facilitated with Paul Atiyah. And we are talking all about trauma and the growth opportunity that it presents Paul is a trial lawyer, a family business advisor. He's an executive in his own family's enterprise. He's worked as a litigator for nearly 15 years and really has provided him a ringside seat to the results of poor decision-making, which will become very apparent in just a moment. He practiced law as a Bay Street litigator in Toronto, Canada, then as a criminal prosecutor in Ottawa, Canada, and then left law to run his own family's business when it needed his assistance. He has worked as an advisor to family businesses and enterprise from across Canada and the U.S. Prior to his career in law and business, Paul was an NCAA Division I varsity athlete in university, graduated cum laude with a degree in psychology and a minor in business. He's a two-sport varsity athlete while in law school, was awarded the Edna Hewitt Louis Chan Memorial Award, I hope I said that right, uh, given to the student who has the best displayed ingenuity, humor, enthusiasm, and camaraderie. Paul resides outside of King City, Ontario with his wife, Ruthann, and his five children. And our conversation uh, that I had the pleasure and honor of facilitating is Paul's story of his comeback story, really, of his concussion. So we are talking about the a traumatic brain injury that Paul sustained and the changes that he noticed within himself and the the delta or the time, if you will, that it took him to recover. And... I thought this was an important conversation to have on the show. It's a bit of a departure from some of the scientists and other thought leaders that we have. But I thought in getting to know Paul, I find his story to be so remarkable in that, as you can tell from his bio, very hyper, very much a well-celebrated athlete, someone who values achievement and success and accolades. 
and can really be knocked off with trauma. So in this case, we're talking about concussion, but of course, this can be any kind of trauma that you sustain in life, as we all do, right? The more lived, the more our lived experiences we accumulate, the higher the likelihood that there is going to be a trauma, a death, a divorce, a concussion. And so Paul outlines the accident that he sustained, and then the coming years after that. I hope that this conversation warms your heart as it did mine and continues to, and is enriching to you insofar as provides you with hope for your ability to overcome whatever life throws at you. Our conversation in total was about four hours. And so the production team and I have decided to break this up into two parts. You will hear the second half of Paul's story next week. So without further delay, please enjoy the first part of my conversation with Paul Atia. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate, Melody, you love the best. Something that I want to touch on a little bit, if we can, is to 
yeah. is to talk about how, because I've, I've read through some of the things you've shared with me and over and over and over again, it's like, I didn't know every day I would wake up and say, what's the deficiency today? You know, it's like, right. wouldn't it, wouldn't have been great if someone was like, Hey, for the next let's, even if it was like three months, well, life if is someone even really just suck. told me, if someone yeah. had just said, this is the list of things and, yeah. and it needs to be yeah. more than just like the list on the back of a pamphlet, like it needs to be experiential. That's why I wanted to do it sort yeah. of the, like. I'll hopefully I'll do more of these podcasts on concussion. As I mentioned to you, you're the first one that I just felt comfortable doing this with. Um, but because it's like, I think it's an experience. Someone needs to hear someone else describe this story and say, oh, I'm experiencing these things. Yeah. It is just helpful. Because yeah. if all of a sudden you think you're just going to have headaches and some light sensitivity, and then suddenly you're having like crippling anxiety mm. or wild rage that you never encountered before, or you haven't encountered since you were like a testosterone-filled 18-year-old, and then you can't figure that out, or all of a sudden your mind just cannot function in the same way and you can't make a decision to save your life. Mm. Uh, it would have been very helpful for someone to be like, yeah, these are very normal things post-concussion. Mm -hmm. So one of the stories we could tell today, I just made a little note of it is, um, and it's a good framework for people, but it's, it's a great line for my buddy, which is, this is not nothing. It's not nothing. And that's sort of like a subtle way of saying like, okay, I don't want to say this is the biggest deal in the universe, but it's not nothing. It's not insignificant. You know? and, and we use that in mountain biking, which is really funny because you go over like a jump or whatever and you see your buddy do it and you're kind of nervous and you know, you say to your buddy, how is it? And if he says it's nothing, then you don't even think about it. If he says, oh my God, you got to be super careful. I wouldn't do it. Then you don't do it. And if he says it's not nothing, that means like it's doable, but pay attention. Mm -hmm. So I love worth, this idea. It's worth remarking on. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so I kind of like this idea of it's like, it's not nothing, mm. you know? So I think about that even just in terms of your friend calling you and they're having a difficult, like my husband just left me. It's like, okay, look, this is not nothing, mm. you know, or, you know, I just found out my, you know, my adult daughter's pregnant. She doesn't know who the dad is. Okay. All right. Like this is not nothing, mm -hmm. you know? And then I'm feeling this, this, this. And then part two of that, which is from another friend of mine is um, you're feeling exactly what you should be feeling in this moment. I just love that. I love telling someone, I just used this recently with a friend, his wife left him and he called me and we sort of knew it was happening. It was sort of a, a protracted situation, and but it was the day it actually happened. And I said, how are you feeling? He's like, man, I'm all over the place. I'm a mess. I'm, I have so many mixed emotions. I feel this, I feel that. And he was just a disaster. And I said, man, you're feeling exactly as you should feel. He's yeah. like, really? I said, yeah. I said, how could you not have a million it's different- an appropriate response to the stimulus. Yes. Like, like, this yeah. is like, this is a big, you know, this is like, this is not nothing, man. You're going to get through this, but like, you should be feeling a lot of, like, you should feel torn and pulled in a million. You're feeling exactly as you should. Mm -hmm. So I was really, really, really lucky. I, I won the friend lottery. You know, I have a lot of really, really close friends, but one of my closest friends that my friend Doug that I mentioned, I wrote him a text the other day. It was just with me, you know, by my side. As I say, he was beside me and in front of me the entire time. And so was Ruthann in a lot of ways, but it was harder for Ruthann because she was much more impacted by my deficiencies, whereas my friend Doug wasn't, um, but he fully understood them. And just the ability to have like that bat phone of someone that I could just call on my worst possible day uh, and just say I'm really struggling um, was so valuable for me because I held in so much. So to have that was huge. And, you know, I think it's important for people to sort of think about that as you go through a difficult and, and their version of Doug might be one person or might be three people, but it's very important to have that. But I think if there's a big message for today, it's totally up to you, obviously, but I think one of them, as I thought about it, was coping with a concussion is really just about coping with life. That's the macro framework, I think, for the situation. Yeah. What happened with the concussion is what it did is it stripped away all of my abilities that I had taken for granted for 35 years. 
And then what it forced me to do is to relearn how to actually navigate my day in a successful and a productive way. And in so doing, it was awful and difficult and tough and almost broke me. But when I eventually did, I had then forced myself to think my way through coping through life. And I picked up systems and learnings and understandings that I never would have had but for that opportunity. And that's why I came out of it better than I went into it. Right. And the metaphor, this is in my, that document and we can use football quarterback or golf, but imagine you're just swinging and you can hit, I don't know, what's the big hit in golf? 300 yards. Imagine you can just sort of have the strength to hit 300 yards in golf and then you get a back injury and suddenly now your back prevents you from hitting that well. So you can only hit a hundred. You could stop there, right? That's what happened. Concussion. It stripped away my natural talent and my ability to deal with the day. And then I spent, you know, the better part of three plus years trying to figure out how the hell to get through my day again. But in so doing, learned skills. And those skills are, you know, to use the golf example, I learned how to swing properly, even with a brad back. And then I get back to the spot where I can now hit it 300 yards again with new technique and a bad back. And then when the back gets better and you have the skills, well, now you're hitting 500 yards. Now it's twin turbo. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because yeah, now it's yeah. like, oh, I have the skill and I have the strength. Yeah. And so I think that to me is like the story, right? Like that to me is like, so use this as an opportunity to cope with life. And that's all these things, you know? So for someone going through menopause, it's like, man, suddenly now I'm fatigued. It's like, okay, you have a different, I'm just making this up, but you have a different energy set now. Okay. Well, how can this thing work for you? How can you identify, manage, optimize this? What can you learn about optimizing your energy? That's actually going to make you a better human in the long run. I, I, I get really excited thinking about sort of the world that way. Because it means that no matter what comes in the front door, you've now got an opportunity to use that thing to your advantage. Yeah. Love yes. that. All right. Well, as we're wading into this topic, I think it would be helpful if we started just kind of giving the listeners a little bit of um, a frame of reference for who you are, how you grew up, um, what are some of the core values um, that are very important to you. And I think it'll become obvious as we as we go through the discussion um, I was very um, happy our uh, mutual friend uh, Chilla introduced us and somehow uh, you and I grew up in uh, same uh, the, one of the suburbs of uh, Toronto in Scarborough, uh, Canada, sometimes referred to as Scarberia or Scarlum. Um, so just to denote, we love, I love Scarborough, but uh, kind of sometimes it can be a rough uh, area of town. My, um, our neighbors across the way um I can't remember what school they went to, but she was, uh, they're also from Scarborough and they were saying to us, you know, it was just when we were in high school, it was just, there was a stabbing and it was just like, oh, okay, I guess there was a stabbing. And, you know, you just get on with your, you sort of get on with life, uh, so to speak. So uh, I would love to just get a sense of what some of the early, uh, your early experiences are, you know, maybe growing up in Scarborough, maybe that you, you had that experience, maybe not. Um, and what sort of family life was for you and what are some of the things that you noticed about yourself early on in terms of your character and who, you know, who you are, who Paul is as a person? That, that, that's a really simple, easy question to answer. Right yeah. Now. Just yeah. for first one, right? <laughs> who <laughs> who are you up. as a person? Tell us what you <laughs> It's way easier. To just the second say, one is what is life? That's the, yeah, that's that's the right. one that what I have the, on deck. What is the meaning of what is best in life? We'll go with full Conan. What is best in life? <laughs> um, so, yes, we grew up in Scarborough. And yes, I'm very glad we got connected through our mutual friend. And uh, yes, very funny how many times we actually crossed paths. We're about the same age and we grew up very close, uh, very close proximity to one another. So we, I'm sure we crossed paths. Uh, so probably similar to you, I actually had no idea that Scarborough was considered like a 
you know, sort of a suboptimal spot of Toronto. It's just where I grew up and it was fine. I, I have nothing but sort of positive memories of, of sort of my experience in my childhood. It was fine. Um, it wasn't until I got older and moved away and you start to obviously see the world a little differently as any adult does. And, um, I, you know, I certainly didn't have any desire to go back and live, um, close to Scarborough for any geographic reason, but it was fine. Lots of my friends are there. My parents are still there. I, I visited all the time. Um, I would just say my experience growing up in terms of like the things that really helped, you know, form me slash forge me. Um, I would say being raised as the son of immigrants in a business family was, was, was huge. Um, my parents, like, like the parents of lots of people in, in Canada or like lots of other Canadians, you know, came here with nothing. My dad got in a boat when he was in his twenties, traveled across the ocean, um, with 300 bucks in his pocket. And he's now 86 and is still working today. Like he just never, he just never took a day off. It's just how he's wired. And, um, my mom's got the same type of work ethic. And I would just say growing up in that atmosphere, um, was just so valuable for me and continues to be today. That really formed, um, a lot of my view of the world in terms of, you know, work ethic and sort of grinding, um, something I'm really grateful for. Like I, I, I feel, you know, probably a lot of lotteries I didn't win. Um, but one I certainly won was the parents lottery. I just, obviously I had nothing to do with who my parents are. And I just feel so fortunate that they're both highly intelligent, extremely moral, very hardworking and very committed to their kids. They're not perfect. No set of parents are, but their interest in my well-being and their interest in the well-being of my brother and the interest of the well-being of my sister and now our respective spouses and all the grandkids, um, I just don't think could ever be doubted. Like if, like if anything, the challenge was that my parents cared too much about me. You know, so I never had that feeling of like, I wish my parents, you know, showed more interest. It was anything. It's like, man, I just, I wish my parents cared a little less about me. So mm -hmm. that, that is, I would say sort of the biggest thing, um, that really just formed a lot of, you know, in terms of like my, my upbringing. And that was something that was really, really powerful for me and really, really beneficial and continues to be. And one of the things that I've, I've garnered just from our conversations, you know, before getting on the show is your, someone who um, I think you'd categorize yourself this way as well as you're someone who thinks very deeply about um, a whole host of topics. But I think that you're someone who puts together frameworks and sort of, you know, does it, does it pass the filter test um, where, and so where I'm going with this is with someone who um, is very much, uh, I don't, I won't say philosopher, but someone who, um, understands maybe the philosophical premise behind things and someone who uh, thinks deeply about subjects where um, how did that lead you into um, into being a lawyer do you think that that's just sort of a natural um, you know that natural talent is a natural fit for that career or how did you find your way how did you find your way there yeah, I think law was a really natural um, job for me. It was that was I, I didn't I wasn't the guy who failed the MCAT. This is my buddy, by the way, but he just sort of didn't didn't get the score he wanted on the MCAT. So he said, "I'll take the LSAT and go from there." Uh, you know, all jokes aside, to <laughs> those who are in that situation, I'm sure it's half of most law schools. Um, no, I I mean I I sort of had inklings in that direction from a really young age. Um, I think I think as far as the deep thinking part, um, just to go back to where you began. You know, so I think philosophy, obviously, in its in its truest form, is just a love of wisdom, and I I, I think I've just always been really attracted to trying to understand the world around me. That's mm -hmm. something that I can remember as far back. Like my earliest memories are me just asking questions, just asking questions, and all of my friends and family to this day. I mean, it's it's probably why I don't get invited to dinner parties sometimes. It's because 
you know, the running joke is Paul's a professional question asker. Like I can't, and, and the irony of, of course, of that wink, wink is that for every question that somebody hears me ask, I actually had 10 more in the hopper that I just didn't let out. Cause I was trying to be a mildly pro-social individual. Gosh, that's so true. Answer. Someone tells me something and I'm like, wait a minute. All right, hold, stop. Yeah. And then I have to just sort of process what's happening in my mind. I love that. Yeah. So I've always, I've always just had a, a an endless amount of questions about things around me, um, of people, of things, trying to understand them. And then I think if you're wired that way and you're trying to understand them and you're trying to consume a lot of information, um, at least for me, I always had to try to make sense of it in my own head. So, you know, and I, I say this sort of half jokingly, but, um, I think it's actually quite true. And this was a really natural, this was really helpful in law, particularly when I was a crown attorney, like I was a prosecutor. So I had to, the job of a prosecutor in a lot of ways is to ask a lot of questions, like understand something and ask a lot of questions and figure out how to marshal evidence and get the right evidence out of the right people in the right way. But then you have to take something that's very, very complex, like a very complex situation, and you have to be able to distill it to something that's simple and digestible for your audience. And if that audience is a judge, so be it. If that audience is a jury of 12 strangers, so be it. So I think I've just been like that. Um, whether it be fitness or school, law school, certainly like this as a prosecutor, certainly what we're going to talk about today with the concussion. I just, I try to approach every situation that way and really try to take what seems to be a seven dimensional sort of dynamic and just break it down into its different pieces, flow chart it in my mind, and then break it into something that break it down into something that's very simple, a, a principle, a statement, a rule, whatever it is. And then I can try to action it. That's the, I mean, that's really um, teaching in, in a way, right? Is like, how can we take a really complex subject that, as you said, is maybe multidimensional or very complex mechanistically or whatever it is, and then how can we simplify it so that there's learning, understanding, um, comprehension, and, and, you know, eventually uh, acquisition of that acquisition of that information becomes knowledge and wisdom. I, I appreciate your your love of learning. I often find sometimes it's hard riding the Dunning-Kreger curve where you're like, oh, I think I know something about something. And then right. the more you learn, you're like, I actually know absolutely nothing about this. And then you sort of ride that sort of wave into disparity. And then you're like, all right, I think, yeah, I think I'm kind of getting it. You know, I'm thinking about metabolism. I'm thinking about hormones because that's sort of the world that I tend to marinate, marinate in. But I remember when I first was learning about, you know, whatever perimenopause i was like i know I, I i can talk about perimenopause i can talk about menstrual cycles and then the more you figure out and the more you get into the minutiae you're like oh my god there's so much more here that i had just never considered um yes. so my my only caveat there is anyone who is um you know just wanting to go deeper on something just know that there's going to be a point where you're going to feel like i know absolutely nothing um, and that's actually, you're probably ahead of 95% of people, um, maybe 95% of, of Instagram and social media at that point as well, because yeah. you're, you know, sort of leaning into the idea that there is actually a lot more nuance and there's a lot more to extrapolate from whatever subject you're trying to, you're trying to unravel and, um, and, and piece together. So I'll use a very simple example. It's the first one that comes to my mind. To learn everything about bike mechanics, you're never going to learn everything about bike mechanics. But, you know, if you meet a really good bike mechanic, they can really, really, really understand a bike. And they're always learning, they're always developing, they're always doing that. But it's a tangible thing. So I don't want to say there's like a finite level of knowledge on it, but there's a, there's a, it's not finite, but there's, there's something tangible there that you can probably get onto a page. But if you try to understand the psychology of a biker or yourself when you're on the bike, well, now it's really nuanced. So again, I think when you, 
like as far as the this sort of the dunning kruger aspect of things in terms of i'm an expert or i'm not like i just sort of view life as like how much can i learn about myself in these different situations because if i can manage myself through these different situations then whatever it is that comes in the front door i'll have a better set of skills to navigate that so you're never going to learn everything about yourself you're never going to learn everything about your kids or your spouse or your coworkers or obviously all humans at large but i'm a really big believer and try to look for like patterns because if you can, and I, I mean, I've used this metaphor before, but I always think about pattern recognition as um, getting arrows and putting them in your quiver. So you sort of see a set of patterns in yourself, a self-destructive one or a productive one or whatever, and you learn about yourself. And you're like, okay, that's that's a cool data point. That's a cool thing I've learned about myself because I've spent time thinking. You know, why was I insecure at that party but not insecure at that party? <laughs> or why did I, you know, whatever, pick whatever thing that you've done. Why is it that I crave food at this time, but not crave food at that time? Why is it that I'm motivated to do this, but I'm not motivated? You know, cross-examine yourself as often as you're sort of doing that, uh, you know, sort of of others. And then look for these consistencies and these patterns in your life. And then sort of think about that. And there's an arrow, throw that in your quiver. You've learned something. doesn't mean you're done learning. It just means you figured that out and then revisit it. So anyway, so that that's the caveat that I sort of give when you think about these things is, yes, you're right. There's an endless amount of things to learn about yourself and about others. I would say for some topics, it depends, you know, to each their own. Some topics you might think, okay, I've learned enough about this. Now I want to move on. So you don't have to approach this to everything in life, but it's very fun to approach life this way for the things you're really passionate about and or the things that really matter to you. Love that. All right. So I think that... um I, I, I think that getting a little bit of a flavor for who you are and how you think um, and maybe your upbringing is very important. And I would love to maybe start to wade into your accident and what happened. Um, so maybe walk us through. So right now we sort of we're in 2014 and you are a crown attorney. Tell us what happens. Yeah. Yeah. So I think just the, the snapshot of, you know, sort of who I am the day before my concussion, if, if I can, I think that's sort of important because it makes its way into the, into the story and the chronology quite a bit. So, you know, obviously you've mentioned what I did for a living at the time. I was a criminal prosecutor. Um, I, uh, I'm married at the time and my wife and I, uh, and yes, people can do the math here, have just had our fourth kid in four years. So we have a four year old, a three year old, a two year old, I think almost a two year old. Yeah. Four year old, three year old you know, a 23 month old and then a sort of few month old. Um, and at the time, and I, again, I only say this just to give context of sort of the snapshot, the before and after, because I think the before and after for the concussion is really relevant to people sort of listening, both in the concussion context and just the life context. Um, I'm working as a criminal prosecutor with a full caseload, love my job, um, love going to work, love going to court. Um, which is very cerebral, by the way, I will say being a lawyer, you know, you can, you know, maybe if you're a construction worker or you're a mechanic or even, you know, a chiropractor in some ways, there's a, there's a cerebral part of it, but there's also a technical aspect of it, the the delivery of the adjustment, let's say, or the, you know, something like that. But being a lawyer is very cerebral. So you're reading through wads and wads of, uh, paper, you're, you know, you have to be on and, you know, when you're in the, in the, and you can certainly speak to this more than I, uh, of course, but when you are in the, um, you know, when you're in the courts and you're, you know, you're doing your job, this is, you know, you very much have to be on point and being able to develop counterpoints and to articulate your idea in, in a way that's convincing. And so speak to, speak to that a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, certainly it, it was all those things for me. And, um, I think the, and I was a, I was a civil litigator before I worked at a, at a large Toronto firm. So I, I sort of had done civil litigation and then went into, to being a criminal prosecutor 
the biggest difference there wasn't necessarily just the content of what you were dealing with. It's actually just how you actually govern your life. So as a civil litigator, you are in an office the vast majority of the time, not in the courtroom. Once you become a prosecutor, you're now in the courtroom, you know, in my case, 80% of my time, if not more. That's why, that's why you want that job. At least that's why I wanted it. So yes, you're doing a lot of thinking, but you're actually sitting in situations of conflict and um, high stress all the time. So if you don't, we make this running joke all the time that, or at least we did when I was there, that if, you know, this, if this is the swim team, if you don't like the water, like, please don't apply, like, cause you will be underwater all the time. Um, I really liked that. I was actually energized by that. You know, I, um, I'm not afraid of conflict. If anything, I almost kind of want to run towards it sometimes. I like, I like conflict, particularly inside of the context of a setting with rules as to how you're actually going to, you know, sort of fight with a sword fairly. I really like that. And certainly the courtroom I felt was that. So I loved, I mean, I was, I was uh, sort of a lifer. They called me like I was so into, I, I, you know, the vast majority of days I would have worked for free. I just really, really, really loved going to court. It was really fun. I liked the stress. Um, I liked the tension. I liked the competitive nature of it. I liked the high stakes. Um, how did I you loved- feel at the end of the day? Did you feel energized at the end of the day? Yeah, very often. In fact, that comes up into the concussion thing. So it was almost like, and I talk about, we'll get, we'll get to this, but I remember one of the most upsetting things post concussion was that my entire life, the most disappointing part of the day was the end of it. I was always disappointed at the sunset. That's how I just felt like up until the day of my concussion, that was just how I was wired. And going back to my upbringing, I mean, my dad's the same way. Like he's just, my dad idols at optimism no matter what. And I just had the MO. I inherited that. I'm really fortunate. I just idled at optimism. It doesn't mean that I walked around with rose-colored goggles that the world was always a good place or that things were great. It just meant that no matter what came at me, my mentality was always like, no problem, we'll crush this. I'll like, figure no this problem, out. Figure this out. No problem, I'll figure yeah. it out. Okay, this will be tough. Okay, I, this hurts. Okay, this sucks. You know, we all have disappointments. We all have things happen. I won't take you through all of it, but I always just had this mentality that no matter what happens... I'll be, I'll be fine. I'll be good. I'll figure this out. And what about, what about the, I want to come back to the conflict for a moment. You said that you really thrived on conflict and sort of having like, you know, uh, fair rules for, you know, fair rules for engagement, let's say. What about the conflict that you find? What was it that you found, you know, attractive or what you enjoyed? What, What did you enjoy about it? I think the energy that comes from it, I think testing ideas, I really like, like, I really like testing ideas. I really like just testing in general. I mean, I think that's probably the athlete in me. Um, you know, so we haven't really talked about that really, but you know, uh, you know, back, back to the Scarborough days, I got, you fell in love. It was, it was, uh, you know, the thinking part of me, I think came from you and I talked with this obviously before the podcast started. We talked about this when we, um, when we met a few a little while ago. Um, I was, I was just a, a sort of a very nerdy kid. Like I was not an athlete. I was a very nerdy kid growing up. Um, and I really just got, I just fell in love with sports right around 10, 11, 12, but you have a lot of formative years prior to that. And so my early memories are just to your point, sort of being a deep thinker. I did well in school. I got, you know, all the academic awards, you know, they're handing out to, you know, kids in grade eight or whatever, but or kids, uh, kids who are eight, but, and then I just sort of this light went off probably right around the same time. Um, I started exercising. I saw I have an older brother and he was exercising. So I'd walk by his room and he was doing push-ups and sit-ups. And I was like, all right, I'm going to do push-ups and sit-ups with you. So we just did a couple hundred of those every night. You know, he was 15, I was 10. Uh, then, you know, puberty sort of hits and I get a wonderful injection of testosterone into me and I start growing. And, um, and then I suddenly went from being a kid who wasn't athletic and was just nerdy to somebody who was suddenly strong and fast. 
And as soon as I became strong and fast, I started doing better in the games at recess. And as soon as I did better at recess, I was like, no, I want to play sports. You know, and then I became, you know, an athlete. And so I started playing competitive football for my high school team and a city team. And I ended up getting recruited to go play in university. So I went and spent four years in the U.S. playing, you know, division one football um, and then came back. And when I went to law school, I found a way to get my eligibility back. So I was actually playing two varsity sports while in law school. And I don't again, I don't say that to be immodest. It's just it's who I was. And even that story, by the way, when I went to law school, I found a way to get eligibility back. And the dean of the law school said, like, I went and talked talk to him and said, hey, can I um, can I play football in law school? He said, oh, no, you can't do that. And I said, oh, like, is there a rule? He said, oh, no, no, there's no rule. He just said, you can't actually go through law school, you know, while playing like, you know, varsity football for the university. And I just said, and it wasn't a, because it wasn't of the load because of the load yeah, or just, oh, he just said okay. the load. He's like, yeah, yeah, you can't you'll be able to handle the reading and the writing and you'll be able to handle all the work. And I just yeah. remember thinking like. It wasn't a define. It's not. It wasn't a. I'm going to prove you wrong thing. It was just. It was more. Again, that's that self reflection piece that we, we hope we want to instill in ourselves. It was more like. I love this sport. I love playing sports. I love football. Um, if I wake up on a Saturday morning to the smell of cut grass, and everyone's sort of heading down to the stadium, and I'm not playing, and I was able to play, like I'm not. I'm not like by that I cannot abide. So I was like, no, I'm going to do this. And so sure enough, I did. So sort of fast forward to answering your question about what I liked about conflict. When I finished law school. Um, I ended up, you know, playing football for three years. I ran, I attempted track for one year. As my friend said, I don't, I was, you know, either very good at it or very bad at it, depending who you ask. Um, but I loved it. Uh, started practicing law and went and played football uh, for a season in, in Europe. The law firm gave me a break to do it, came back. You know, if you ask my wife, she would say, cause we started dating around that time. She would say that I probably about five times a week said how I needed to find a new competitive sport. I just needed something because football was done. And so I just kept on, I just lifted weights and ran every day. Like the NFL may still come calling. So I kept on training, like, like I was still trying to become a pro football player, but of course uh, the NFL didn't come calling. And I just complained every day about needing a competitive sport. And then I became a criminal prosecutor. Then I got that job. And my wife would say the week I started working in the court courthouse and was in the courtroom, I stopped complaining about needing a new sport. And so that's sort of the long-winded way of saying, I think that's what happened is I went to court and it reminded me so much of sport because there's a preparation piece and then there's like a testing piece. And the execution piece. Yes. It's like yeah. you have to do this and the more you prepare, the better you can do it, but you can only do it so much because it's still in real time. It's very different than preparing and writing a paper on your own terms and then submitting it or in law, you know, writing a fact and submitting it. it there's no real time reactionary need to it. Whereas in court, you prepare and then you go and then the whistle blows sort of thing, you know, when court starts and now you're on your feet and the witness gives you an answer you didn't expect or the judge rips into you or, you know, something happens like this is just inevitable. And you have to really be in love with that. You have to be in love with being forced into really, really, really uncomfortable spots in your job. So... Yeah. So I don't know. I, I think that was just, I think, I think it was the sport part of it. And I, I feel that way even now. I mean, I think I probably still get very energized by having really robust debates with my good friends. Like I, I like that. I really like having my ideas challenged. And that probably comes down to that curiosity thing too. Like you really just want to get at something and figure out what the hell's going on. And I think in order to do that, you have to be prepared for conflict. Yeah. I mean, that's what you're, what you're describing is what should be the scientific method, right? It's like, I have this hypothesis now test me and see if it actually stands the test of all these different all these different attacks and see if it actually has any legs to it and i think that it's important to 
understand that about you because as we talk about the concussion which i think it might be um you know maybe time to talk about sort of what happened i think yeah. that it's it's an interesting um it's an it's an interesting contrast to see what happens to an individual like this you know we've talked about uh this idea I mean, at least for me i can say and you can redirect me if i'm if i'm incorrect here but one of my core values is striving for excellence, whatever that looks like. And I'm really willing to suck at it in the beginning and like really willing to fail and have, you know, teachers and mentors and people help me along the way. Um, and that's something that I'm very proud of because I think a lot of, I think a lot of people and it, I was, it, you know, it's certainly maybe that's come with age, but there's, there was a time in my life where I never, I was so scared of looking a certain way, so scared of appearing a certain way that I would never try things. And I have sort of gotten over myself, if you will. And now mm-hmm. all I want to do is try to better myself in every vertical that is important to me. So, you know, we were talking about parenting and marriage and, you know, right. community and, you know, career and all, all the places. So I think, um, I think it's important to sort of establish who you are. This is why I'm asking. I was like, well, no, who you great. are as a person no. and like, what's the meaning of life? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good with it. No, I, I, I totally understand. I think that's, it's, it's totally fair. I appreciate it. I, um, I think I just wrote this down while you were sort of, well, I was just thinking about it here. So I, I would say in terms of, you know, who was I at that point, you know, when I have a concussion, you know, the best person to answer that would be other people, yeah. right? Like in terms of how they sort of perceive me, but certainly how I look back upon and, and certainly would have viewed myself is um, uh, the words that sort of jump to mind is definitely someone who was um, motivated a lot by a sense of gratitude uh, to my family. I think I just always had this, you know, uh, this mentality. So I'd say gratitude would be a really big thing for me and, and sort of like, I better do well with my life, that earn it mentality, good, bad, or ugly. I just always had that sort of when I was 26, I finished law school. And I remember my best friend at the time asking me, you know, how do you feel? And he did a little exit interview for me at my law school sort of grad. And I remember the time it dawned on me, my dad was 26 when he came from Egypt. So my dad at 26 had 300 bucks and, you know, brand new country ESL. Yeah. And then fast forward one generation and at 26, um, you know, I have my law degree. I have my, I had a degree in psychology and business for my undergrad. I had, you know, had this great life of playing football and traveling all around the States and, I owned a house at the time and I owned a car and I was like, oh, and I graduated law school debt free. And I was like, wow, that's what my parents did in one generation. Mm-hmm. And so my, my thought was my dad came over here with an acorn and he built an oak tree. I was given the oak tree. I better go build a forest. That was actually my thought as a 26 year old in that moment. And so I think I just always had this mentality of like, you better do a lot with what you've been given. So that was just huge for me. So I'd say I was just, and it's not a guilt thing. It's not like, oh man, like I, I, I just, if I'm energized by it, it's fun. I was just like, I've been given a lot, you know, even now my mom will sometimes call me after she visits with us and she'll, you know, say something very sweet about how proud she is of how I'm doing as a dad and how engaged I am with my kids or how happy my, and I always say the same thing. I'm like, mom, like it would be impossible for me not to pour so much into my kids because my, you know, my cup literally overfloweth here from you and dad. Mm-hmm. Like I had so much love poured into me and so much, you know, so many good things sort of poured into me. So it, it would be impossible for me to sort of keep this bottled up. Yeah. So I'd say grateful be one. Um, obviously you, you can tell already and everyone's accused me of this a million times, but very intense. So very intense, very focused, very driven. Um, you know, certainly blame my parents for that, blame my older brother for that super intense, super driven guy, you know, huge role model for me growing up very close with him. And I just, I just, I, I often think I, I, you know, I won the lottery 
on that front too, because I was just at a really young age, just showed focus and drive. You know, when I came home and said, Hey, I want to have a weightlifting program because I want to play football the next day or the next, you know, hour, whatever it was, I had a weightlifting program written out for me by my older brother. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget it with the words on it. I can, I can, you know, see it like it's today saying never, ever, 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 ever under any circumstances ever miss a workout. (laughs) So that was just like tattooed to my forehead as like a 10 year old. And I got that. I was like, okay, got it. And it's crazy because my son, one of my sons is now 11 and I just came into his room the other day to put him to bed and he said, Hey dad, look, and I've never told him this story. And he now has a sign, uh, a handwritten sign that he wrote, I will never miss a workout. Really? And he just did it on his own and he put it up on his wall because he's oh been exercising. Gosh. And so I'm just like, wow. Okay. And, and you look, know, look, maybe, I don't know. I, I thought I was just like, wow, it just sort of reminded me of this. So, so certainly in terms of, you know, who I was at the time or who I, who I am, uh, very grateful and, and thankful for the people sort of that have invested in me, super intense. Um, and yes, intense just about everything I do. It's like, if I want to have a conversation, I want to just, you know, really get into it. If I want to play football or whatever, as a, as a lawyer, it was very, very, very intense. Um, was really focused on just a judge once nicknamed me game seven because, um, <laughs> she said that I treated every single trial like it was game seven of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Yeah. For our Americans like, that listen, yeah. that's like, that's a hockey reference. I know that's yeah, very right. big in Canada. I mean, I'm sure some hockey, yeah, uh, fans it could have been the, the the Super Bowl, right? Super yeah. Bowl. Yeah. So, so, but, but so that was just a running joke for a while because it was like, there's a lot of rinky dink trials that you do because there's a lot of trials. And it was just like, <laughs> so she was like, your buddy there. She said it to my friend of mine. She's like, your buddy there, Tia going to call him game seven. He's, he's running like the trial of the century on like something that should be like, but it was just like, no, if you're gonna like, just, you know, don't leave any meat in the bone. It's like, we're here. Like, let's get after this. And so I mean, I, th- I think that's one of the reasons why I like you so much. It, I, I like, truthfully, I think that it's something to be, it's admirable. And I think it's something that, um, you know, we were talking about, you know, prior to you coming on the show around how kind of your story is a bit Campbellian, like it sort of follows the sort of Joseph Campbell arc a little bit. And I think um, whenever we go to see movies, whenever we when whenever we hear a great story, part of it is that we can see, you know, the hero or the struggle that the individual went through, but we also can appreciate who they were before, what the struggle is, how, you know, the depths of despair and how they maybe lost hope several times for several months, years, uh, in some cases, decades. Well, thank you. I, 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 I appreciate those kind words. Um, so, you know, again, to, to your question, certainly driven by gratitude, certainly always been extremely, extremely intense, very, very, very driven. Um, we talked a little bit before about optimism. You know, I just, again, my dad saw that in him every single day. Just I never, the guy, <laughs> I have so many stories about him. On this, um, they're all worth sharing. We can't certainly do them all, but, you know, arrives in Canada, um, 300 bucks to his name, grew up on the Mediterranean in Egypt, never seen snow, never experienced bad weather, takes a boat across the Atlantic. It's December 14th. We have the passport stamped. As he approaches the shores of Canada in mid-December of 64, he's met by mounds and mounds of sort of snow and ice. Which he's never seen before. Which he's never seen. He's never experienced cold weather. Nothing. Like never been far from home. Nothing. And, you know, I, I, I asked about this sort of growing up and never forgot his answer. I said, you know, what did you think at that moment? And of course, the thought that I have is that my dad's thinking like his heart sinks and, oh my God, what have I done? Why have I left the beaches of Alexandria kind of thing? And he said, oh, my first thought was, oh my God, look at all this snow and ice. I wonder if I can get it onto a boat, send it back to Egypt and sell it. 
because when I was selling my Coca-Colas and my Fantas on the Egyptian beaches, I could never keep them cold. And so it's like that just story just summarizes everything about who that guy is, which is when everybody else would have had every reason under the sun to see a disaster. This guy was like, what an amazing the opportunity. Sees it. So he just has that in spades. Um, and I fast forward 50 years later, uh, it, it, not, not to get all sappy, but you know, we're sitting at Princess Margaret. We've just left the oncologist's office. He's been diagnosed with cancer and we've just gotten this result. And the doctor has literally said, Hey, we got the biopsy back and it's bad news and you're going to start pre, pre-op radiation tomorrow. And so we head downstairs to the, to the drug. I was just there the other day, actually, to the, the drug on university there. And, um, I turned to my dad and I'm just like beside myself. I'm distraught. I'm upset. I'm emotional, you know, and I turned to my dad and I say like, dad, she's like, how do you, how do you feel? Like what's going through your mind right now? You just got diagnosed with cancer. I'm not laughing at the time. I'm laughing now as I tell the story. And he looks at me and he says, what? I don't have cancer. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry. Pardon me. He says, I, Polly, he calls me Polly. Polly, I don't have cancer. I was like, what the hell? Now I'm mad. Now I'm like, what? What the hell are you talking? He's like, no, no, no. I feel fine. Those doctors don't know what to, I feel great. Okay. What time are you? And then he just dives right into like the next thing. Wow. And so, you know, he, he did have cancer. He went through, he had surgery. He did, he did, he did great. But I just remember like, I just grew up around that. And, and just so you know, like this is a, this is a podcast and a conversation in and of itself. But that personality trait is insanely annoying to be married to. It's insanely annoying to grow up to. Like it's not easy to be around that. But easy is not the goal. So I think it's very rich to be around. And it certainly had a wildly um, positive influence upon me. I just love his reality distortion. He does not believe um, he'll ever have a bad day. Everything will work out for him. But it's it's not like he's not prepared to work to make it so. So he's not a guy that rolls around being like, all right, it's okay. Like he's not a, he's not a Larry Lunchbox who's like, well, you know, things will work. It's not that. It's not, I don't know how to articulate it, but it's not like a deflated optimism as an excuse to get out of work. And, and to be honest, the one person that I see it in most, even though I've never met him, actually I met him once for like 20 seconds, uh, is actually Arnold Schwarzenegger. And my brother and my sister and I have both had this conversation. We're like, we're all Arnie fans. And we're like, man, Arnie reminds us of dad. It's just this, like, I don't give a shit about reality guy who, and I think the accent part and the business, you know what I mean? It's just and you, like, now when you listen to Arnie, you'll see what I'm talking about. It's sort of just this, like, you know, like it's, I'm, whatever I want to make happen is going to happen. You know, and my dad has that in spades. Anyway, so back to your list of things in terms of who I was before the concussion, very grateful, extremely intense and driven, very, very, had that optimism. Um, and then I would just say sort of connected with that. I, I sort of written these down, but, you know, really, really just in the pursuit of, you know, sort of honest answers to things, always really interested in just sort of like, what's the honest answer here? Like, let's actually, like, let, like, like, can we be honest brokers in all we do? And I think that ties back to where we began this conversation, right? That cerebral part of just asking questions. You just want to just be like, I don't have the answers, but I, I want to get to the right answer. And if you pursue your life that way, you will, by definition, be forced to change your mind a lot of times. And I think that's something that people really struggle. People want to get the people value comfort over truth. There's a that's humility. There's a beautiful humility in that as well. That's right. Cause you have to find yeah. out how long you've been. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, I think people, I, I sort of all like, again, trying to distill it down into like a line. I think people value comfort over truth and because there is sure. comfort, just the answer. And, yeah. um, I think there's discomfort. That's a word. There's discomfort in pursuing the truth. Um, but then it leads to this final piece that I would, I just sort of wrote down here, which would just be, you know, richness. You know, richness, 
not in a financial way, but just richness in terms of just the experience of life, like enjoying experience. it. Yeah, beautiful. And the experience, like a real relationship with your friends, an honest relationship, a real relationship with your spouse, a real sort of deep dive into your own soul as to like what actually drives me. Why the hell am I doing this? The good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, why am I insecure about this? Why am I confident here? What do I really want to do? How do I want to allocate my time? And um, yeah, I'd say I spent a lot of time doing that. And, and obviously those things would be in different, you know, um, volumes at time. Um, I would say, you know, where I was as a, you know, 35, 36 year old, um, I would say certainly the, the intense side of me would have been probably in the driver's seat a lot more, you know, so, and we're going to kind of come back to this, but, you know, so at the time I'm, you know, whatever, 35, 36, my wife and I are married and we've got four kids under four, essentially. That was really tough, but it was by design. We were, she's wired similar to me in terms of like, let's just we want a big family. Let's do this quickly. Let's, you know, have a big family. Let's go for it. Um, I'm taking on as many cases as I can. I'm still working out once or twice every single day. Um, I'm helping out with a couple of buddies with a couple of their businesses. Cause I decided, you know, cause you know, the proverbial, you know, four kids in a day job as a prosecutor wasn't enough. I want to help out. I had like had a rental property. I was like volunteering in other groups. Like it was just, again, it was like, how much can I squeeze into every single day? Um, because, and I, I just love that. And I love the intensity and like the challenge. And I happen to be fortunate enough to have the energy to be able to hold that, hold that up. So that, that's who I am. The day before. Of, the day before, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. So with that giant caveat, that giant sort of lead up, uh, I'm riding to work, riding to the courthouse. I'm on my bike and a uh, normal commuter ride. You're wearing a helmet. I just want all wearing the a helmet. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Yeah. No. Yeah. D- dive in as much as you, as much as you need to. So I'm riding to work. I can tell you exactly sort of where it happens. Um, we're in Ottawa at the time, you know, Ottawa, Canada. Um, I'm on a road on my bike. Um, it's actually, it's springtime. And I remember so well, it's, and every Canadian will appreciate this. I don't know uh, how far south your audience goes, but as your climate gets warmer, you, you won't appreciate this, but every Canadian will. It's, it's that, it's that first day of spring when you're out and you can tell winter sort of behind you. You know, it's sort the of the like last throes of winter are behind it's, well, you. Well, it's more, it's more so like the, the beginning smells, like the beginning sense of spring is sort of how I remember that morning. Mm-hmm. And I think every Canadian sort of has that sense. And you're all excited. You know, there's not an unhappy person in Canada, sort of, certainly in Southern Ontario, when you sort of have that morning, you're like, oh my gosh, okay, finally, you know, like uh, things are going to start to blossom. And as I'm riding, I'm on a road and the, the visual here is important. So I'm riding along and on this road in front of me to the, to the right of me, like where cars would be as two parked trucks. So there's a parked truck here and a parked truck in front of it. And then there's a sidewalk on the other side of those. And I'm over here, I'm sort of left of the trucks. 
And as I'm riding along, seated on the bike, all I remember, all I know that happened was a woman, a female runner, darted out onto the roadway from between the two trucks. So these were trucks that were, you know, five and a half, sort of six feet high, high, higher than that, sort of in terms of the top of it, but the hood of them. And she darted out onto the road from between these two trucks and literally ran into my head. So it's not like she came in front of my bike and my bike T-boned her. My front wheel never touched her. So if my front wheel is here as my left hand, she darts out and then sort of T-bones me, but she's running. And so all I remember is being on my bike, seated, sort of hands on hoods. And the next thing, the first thing I guess I nearly noticed is literally someone runs into my head and hits my right cheekbone. And I fall off my bike and to the left. And she, of course, falls as well. And she falls sort of forward. She hits the ground hard and I hit the ground hard. Um, and so it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's actually gets like, it turns into a bit of an ugly situation because I get up in my mind, I get up sort of right away and I see, and she's actually quite injured. So she now has blood coming out of her ear. Um, it's very, very upsetting. I'm like super, super, super concerned about her. I'm like, Oh my God, are you okay? Are you okay? I call nine one one. I'm just trying to, I don't know anything. I don't have first aid training, but I'm certainly just, you know, probably instinctively doing what we would all do in that situation, which is just try to talk to her and make sure that she's okay. While I'm calling 911, describing what happens. And so within a few minutes, I get emotional talking about it. Obviously, these are, these are sort of upsetting events and, you know, for a whole host of reasons. But um, uh, ambulance and police come. She regains uh, consciousness. Um, uh, they put her in a stretcher and they take her to the hospital. So I'm giving you an expedited version, but that's ultimately what happens. They then turn to me and they say, hey, do you want us to take you to the hospital too? And I say to them what probably any you know person would say, which is, no, I'm fine. Because I had just seen what happened to her, and I was like, "No, I'm fine." And they Relati- don't relatively, her to her. Yeah. yeah. And I just, to be honest, I mean, that was just my default. I, I think I, I thought I was fine. I mean, I genuinely believed I was fine. And so I remember my bike at that point was sort of broken; it was unrideable because she had run into the side of it at such like a at a fi- high pace, and then I sort of fell over on it. So I remember picking up my broken bike, and I was actually due in court that morning. I was, you know, a prosecutor. Who How was fast was she going? Morning. How fast was she running? Do we have like? I an don't estimate? actually know. No, but I know that she, she. I mean. This is a longer conversation. So this thing, this is another part of the story, but this became the subject of a lawsuit because several months later, she sued me. And um, even though, you know, of course, no problems, it was zero fault. Like, as I said, at one point I was cross-examined in the lawsuit and her lawyer asked me point blank. He said, did you have a bell on your bike? You know, sort of like, you know, to have sort of alerted her. And my answer, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but the lines of like, I didn't have a bell on my bike. And I can assure you, sir, that even if I had a foghorn on my bike, it wouldn't have fucking mattered. Pardon yeah. my French. Yeah. Because unless, and I, you know, unless I had x-ray vision or a time see machine, between the two trucks, there yeah. is no yeah. way I could have prevented this. Yeah. All I did was ride my bike on the damn road. And, you know, your client's a nice enough lady, but she ran it and she's very lucky. I'm a 185 pound guy on a bike, not a vehicle. Because if I'm a vehicle, she's dead kind of thing, right? So, or injured much worse at the very least. So I don't know how fast she was running, but, you know, fast enough that she just ran into me and knocked me fully off my bike. And to be honest, the impact knocked her back. She was, she was very injured as well, you know? And, um, so I pick up my broken bike and I walk to the courthouse and I remember it like it was yesterday. Interestingly enough, I obviously I've thought about this a lot and I, um, walk up to my office and I called my wife, um, and I told her what happened. And then I hung up the phone 
And a second later, I picked up the phone and I called my wife and told her what happened. And I had zero recollection that I just did that a minute ago. And that's when my wife said, okay, yeah, something's not right here. You know, she's like, uh, you just told me this. And I was like, what? She's like, you just called me a second ago and told me. I was like, what? Oh, she's like, uh, I don't think you're okay. I'm going to come get you. And I said, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. She's like, no. And I hung up the phone. I was like, no, I must just be nervous or I must just be rattled or whatever. So I start changing to go into court and she calls like my boss, basically, you know, she calls the, the courthouse, she calls the, the crown attorney staff and they're like, you better go get Paul. He probably shouldn't walk into court. So they sort of prevent me from going to court. Um, my wife comes and gets me. Um, and you know, at the time she's at home with a baby and three other kids kind of thing. So she just drops me off of the hospital. And I just remember, I remember going to the hospital, you sit in the ER, you spend a lot of time waiting. One of my really good friends is a doctor there. He came to see me for a bit. And then I just remember, I think I called my brother at the time to tell him. And then I just remember crying, like uncontrollably crying. I can't remember it was on the phone or after. I just remember like sitting there in the waiting room, like uncontrollably crying, which, and I'm an emotional guy. You know, I, I cry at commercials. I, I you know, I, I cry at movies, but certainly never like that before. And it wasn't physical pain. I mean, I was in some physical pain, but I just remember like sort of, you know, uncontrollably weeping. Um, and of course that Were was sort of observing yourself uh, almost like the outside and saying, why am I crying like this? This is un- yeah, a little atypical bit. for, yeah. I, I don't even know if I was reflective enough in that moment. I think I reflected on that probably later. I think at the moment I'm still just like very confused as to what the heck's going on. And mm-hmm. so I remember that, um, I remember that just being like a really sort of very odd day, but I was sort of half in it, half in it, half out of it. I see an ER doc. I think it was a resident. I didn't get any scanning done. I sort of describe what happened. Um, you know, I think I got, you know, flashlight to the pupil, that sort of thing. And I just remember sort of being told head home. Um, you had a concussion. Um, you know, sit in a dark room, sort of stay away from people. Um, you may have a bit of a headache. That was basically, and I'm not faulting anybody for that, but that was sort of what I, what I was told. And so I called my wife, she came and got me. And I just remember, um, going home. I remember going into the basement, sleeping on like pulling, like we put up blinds or we did something to make the basement pitch black. And I remember just like sleeping on the couch. So I just sort of sat in a dark room. I remember the next day getting up. Did you have a fever or anything like that? Not that I recall. Mm -hmm. And I just remember the next day, um, I remember getting up and I remember walking to a coffee shop. I went to Starbucks and I remember going to the exact same Starbucks that I had gone to sort of every day for the last seven years, you know, twice of the day sort of thing. And I've ordered the same drink there every single time. So for every single day for seven years straight, I'd walked into the exact same location and ordered the exact same drink, like a very, very much a rote task. And I'll never forget it. I remember walking into Starbucks and I couldn't order my coffee. I got to the front and I couldn't order a coffee. I would always get sort of like a, a grande mild and a venti cup, you know, like sort of like middle, co- you know, I, I it was just because I, I, then I could top it up with cream and I'm, I'm the son of an immigrant. So I was always looking for the, you know, the, the cheap deal here. Right. So I'd get the, you know, I'd always get like an upsize in the cup. Cause I'm like, I think sneakily, they're just going to give me more coffee. That was always like my move. And I was like, yeah, I'm winning. And, um, and I, I literally walk up to the front and she says, yeah, what would you like? And I just stared at her. And I couldn't, the words couldn't come. And the only way I can describe it is I, I thought I was looking like my thoughts to me were um, a series of like, like a constellation of stars in the sky with no lines connecting them, mm-hmm. you know, like a connect your dots, but there was no lines connecting them. So I knew I wanted like the middle type of coffee. Like I knew I wanted a mild, 
I knew I wanted the middle size, like a grande, and I knew I wanted it in the biggest cup, in a venti cup. Um, but I couldn't say the words and I couldn't say any words. And so I sat there for what was probably only, you know, I don't know, a minute, maybe whatever it was. It's certain, but, but it felt like a thousand years. And it was, I was just like, what the hell? And so eventually I stumbled out the words of like, m- just like middle size, mid, like I, I somehow stumbled out the words without actually ordering like my coffee the way I normally would or the way a normal human would have. And she got me a coffee and then I remember getting it. And I remember going outside and again, very rare for me. I just sat down on the curb of the road. I remember where I was still in Ottawa. And I remember I just sat down on the curb of the road. Um, and either then or like I either went to get a bite to eat and then sat down or whatever it was. But I just remember having my coffee sitting down on the side of the road and I probably lived like not very far from there and I couldn't get home. I just I was unable to walk home, not not physically. I was just mentally unable to walk home. Because your cognitive map, like you couldn't find, you wouldn't be able to navigate through the streets. I can't even really describe what it was other than I just did not have the ability to like put one leg in. So I just sat, I just did not have the ability to put one leg in front of the other to walk home. I just literally, the idea, you know what it was? It was the idea of walking home seemed like an overwhelming task. Not like it was just like, that's just too much. Mm. So I sat there for three hours just on the side of the road. And again, you know, 24 hours earlier, I was a guy who like, Worked out at 5.30 in the morning and rode his bike to work and wrestled his kids and was about to walk into court to try to, you know, kick someone's ass kind of thing. So, and suddenly now, 24 hours later, um, I couldn't even walk home. And I just remember sitting there in almost just like a, I guess a haze is how you describe it. Um, and eventually I went home. I don't really remember how. I just remember probably like walking home eventually. And then we're just going home. I think I tried exercising. I remember sitting on like, like an indoor training bike. And I remember that either that day or the next day. And I remember doing that in the dark because I was afraid of light. Like the light sort of seemed to bother me. And then I remember crying again. I just remember sitting on the bike and starting to weeping again. I don't know. It was really, it was really, it was really wild. I just started crying while riding my bike, which again, so at this like, point, you, you at this point, you're starting to feel like, okay, there is something that is not typically Paul. Right. Cause you know, I don't even know if I was aware of it at that point yet. That was sort of yeah. day two. I think I'm yeah. still sort of like what's happening. Okay. You know what? I just got to sleep it off or I just got to rest or sort of, okay, yeah. it's a dark room. So I remember sort of like, again, just being in that dark basement, I had to get off the bike, sort of that training bike and I'm sleeping. And then the next day I tried going back to work. I was like, okay. And I think what happens, I mean, this goes back to, this is a whole other framework, but if you're driven and you're optimistic or whatever it is, you're sort of like, you almost like, I think we all do this, you know, name, name the last time you had a fever, you tell yourself when you should kick the fever by, right? I have a fever on 100%. Tuesday, okay? yep. but yep. on Friday, I can still do the podcast because, you know, Friday mm-hmm. is not. So we set all these like timelines. So I think if I look back upon it, I probably had just said in my head, well, you know, by this day, I'll be better. You know, I don't really remember that, but I remember thinking, I, I remember not having the thought you're describing, I, I think, which is like, oh my God, something's desperately wrong with me. I was probably like, so I remember I went back to work and I remember sitting in my office and I had a non-court day, which was rare. And I was reading case law. And then I just got really, really, really nauseous. I got like insanely nauseous to the point where I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to run out of my office and you know, I'm going to vomit. And I don't, I, you know, I experienced na- nausea very few times in my life. I don't really, I don't even remember when I've experienced nausea. So having that from reading really sort of scared me because I was like, what is going on here? So I spent half the day there, couldn't get through a sentence 
uh, without feeling like I was going to throw up. So then I went home. And that was the first time that I was like, oh, this is, this is not nothing. And I didn't know who to call. I mean, I didn't even really have many medical practitioners in my life because I wasn't ever really sick, right? Like I, I think we had a family doctor, but I never saw him. Um, but there was an osteopath in Ottawa, a guy named Richard Gregory, who I'm forever grateful for. And, um, I had seen Richard for sports injuries. And I remember, um, Richard being the first osteopath that I had met and he was just revolutionary for me in terms of how he helped me with sports injuries because I had seen as an athlete, I had seen a million different, you know, MDs and, or like I'd seen lots of different, I'm not taking anything away from them, but I'd seen a lot of them and physios and all this kind of stuff. And I remember sort of Richard in years earlier to that really helped me with a lot of my sports injuries. So I just thought, I didn't know, I just thought like Richard is always just seems to be a guy who's, you know, thinking differently and thinking better. And I yeah, called and Categorically, him. this is technically a sports injury. I was on my bike. Yeah, I no, good. I hadn't even thought about it that way. It was more yeah. just like Richard's just a smart guy and he's always been really helpful when it comes to sort of the human body. So I'm going to call him yeah. to his credit. He took my call and he was so kind and he, um, and was really helpful. And he's the first person who said, Hey, this is, this is, this is a big deal. He's the first one who said, look, you got to take this really seriously. He's like, um, this is not like if you're sort of, if this is what you're experiencing, he's like, this is, this is a big deal. Um, he said, don't take this lightly. Um, he said, get off your cell phone right away. Like, don't, you know, like, I don't want you spending a lot of time on screens. He's like, can you come in? Cause he's like, we can do an assessment of you, like a questionnaire. He's like, we can even do some like deep tissue massage on you to see if we can sort of, you know, release any tension. But he was just the first person who said, this is sort of a bigger deal. So I went to go see him the next day, I think, or maybe even, I don't know if you know, my wife drove me that afternoon. I don't really remember, but, um, that was the first time that I was like, oh, this is, this is not nothing. And so I would say the, 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 the following weeks after that. So, you know, I, I didn't really go back to work. I would try to go back to work. I would say the next, you know, certainly the next four weeks, but then ultimately I, I sort of think about this thing in, in, in chunks. I would say the next, you know, four to six weeks were extremely tough because there wasn't very much anyone could do for me. It was helpful that Richard told me what was going on. He gave me some sort of literature to read. Um, but I would just say the next four to six weeks were just a really, really, um, awful time of me being in like a very, very cloudy, um, haze. And I would say, um, I don't think I even at the time really knew what was going on. I was just feeling things. So every day I would just feel something. And I don't think I even knew what I was feeling. It took me a while to actually sort of like almost hit emotional feeling life. or physical feeling or both. All of the above. Like everything was just different. Everything was off. But I don't think I even knew how off it was in those early weeks. Well, just to, just, to, I mean, take it. It's a, it's a very simple metaphor. I'm just thinking about it right now, but just imagine someone just dropped a 50 pound backpack on you and then just said, like, and by the way, if you've ever done this in the gym by, you know, working out with a weight, just go work out with a weight vest and then suddenly just be like, oh, right. Like that's a really good way to just sort of be like, I feel the same, but I feel very different. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's how I sort of would just describe it. It's like if someone just put a 50 pound weight vest on you and just said, go live your normal life, it would take you a while. If the weight vest, you know, to use my metaphor, if the weight vest is invisible, it would take you a while to figure out what the hell's going on, right? Like you would just, you would walk upstairs and be tired if you were wearing a 50 pound invisible weight vest, but you wouldn't, you'd have, you'd sort of just be like, I guess I'm just tired. You know, like, is this a thing or is this not a thing? I mean, when I think about this in hindsight, I think this is like life 101 in terms of transitions happening to us. Most of the time shit's changing 
you're not really aware of it until you're well into it. You know, like if you've ever talked to someone, and I'm sure you've talked to lots of people who like had their marriage sort of unravel. I think very often one of the questions I ask people, again, probably why I'm not always invited to dinner parties is like, when did you know? <laughs> right? Like, when did you know? And if you interview a couple in that situation, you know, their knowledge point isn't always going to be the same, right? It's sort of like, the, you know, I like to quote, um, gosh, I forget who it is, but it's, it's a great line and it's not my own, but it's, you know, how, how did you go bankrupt? It's like, I went bankrupt two ways very slowly. Then all of a sudden. So I, I just think that's a really good framework for life in general. Like, you know, how do things happen very slowly all of a sudden, right? How did you hurt your lower back? It's like very slowly all of a sudden. It was like a years of, you know, you know, treating myself really poorly. And then I picked up a lawnmower and then I hurt my back or whatever, right? So, so again, back to sort of what was happening for me post-concussion, I just sort of look at that. And I think there was just this like massive degeneration at the point in terms of like my capacities, but I was almost still like not fully aware of it was happening. Did you ever, did you have mornings or, you know, sometimes, you know, when you wake up in the morning and it's like, okay, that was just a bad dream, you know, or you had like, before you're fully conscious, you're like, all right, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to, I'm going to go do my job and I'm going to do my 530 workout and I'm going to crush the day. It was, did you sort of have that, you know, that moment before you come, you know, you become fully conscious and you're like, oh shit, no, I'm not actually going to be going to do my 530 uh, workout, you know, before you sort of fully come aware and you're like, oh God, this bad dream is actually not a my dream. Reality. It's still, yeah, it's still my reality. I think what I had during that time, I wouldn't describe it necessarily that way. I would have describe it as I had um, moments of what I thought was normal. And you'd think, oh, good. I'm okay, fine. Fine. Okay, good. Like the fever's gone kind of thing. And mm-hmm. then I would have a reminder that I wasn't normal. I would describe it that way. It's very, like, very staccato, like in terms of like, I thought I was through it, thought I was over it, and then I wasn't. So if you actually... I've actually not gone back and done this like, you know, a sort of a day by day, but I, I do have a general idea as to what I was doing in our lives at that point. And, and I'll come to this because it's definitely more true of sort of like the two years that followed. But to a lot of people who observed me, they would have thought I was fine. I mean, that's probably one of the ironies of a concussion. And it's certainly, I think, sort of in your world, an irony of hormonal change, right? Is that, you know, I, I give the class, the classic example, if you broke your leg skiing, and then you had to go get Every, a talk. Everyone sees you'd it. Walk yeah. onto the stage with yeah. crutches. You'd have yeah. a cute joke. People would open the door for you, et cetera. Right. So sort of injuries like that are very visible, but a concussion or a massive hormonal change, or of course use depression or anxiety or whatever sort of thing that's going on inside, no one can really see. And then you just feel it. So there's not really the same level of like um, maybe societal accommodation sort of in the moment. Like no one's holding the door open for you to sort of stick with my metaphor. So I'd say if people saw me during that time, I think to the outside world in a lot of ways, I probably appeared the same and normal. Um, I certainly felt that way for the next two years. Like not everyone really understood. And most people who saw me or interacted with me didn't fully know. So, so I would just say, um, you know, forget about sort of this next six week period. What I, what I, you know, and, you know, sort of going on to the next stage of it. What I, what I certainly remember about that. And, and sort of the biggest, the biggest change to describe in the simplest way was this. Uh, my personality had changed for the very, very first time in my, you know, three and a half decades on the earth. I had become something I had never experienced before, which was apathetic. I was apathetic. I had literally lost all the stuff that, you know, sort of, and I know this is why you wanted to spend time on sort of me explaining who I was before, but all of that was gone. I didn't have drive. I didn't have energy. I didn't have an intensity. You know, you'd asked me earlier, was I tired at the end of the court day? And it's like, yeah, but like energized because you wanted to go fight some more and then go do something else. And yeah. 
am I going to do for the evening? And, you know, like I said, the, the biggest disappointment in my day, you know, up until that point in my life was that the sun was setting. Like, it's sort of like, damn it. The day, like, I was never, ever, ever the type of person who was like looking at his watch being like, geez, I really hope that whistle blows and this sort of game ends or like, you know, you're never looking for that Fred Flintstone whistle to say the end of your shift. And after the concussion that I was a different human, I was suddenly, I was apathetic. I lost my drive. I lost my motivation. I lost, um, I, I literally just described myself as like a lump on a log. I mean, I, I was just, and I remember seeing, you know, the visual on that, you know, was, um, was a day where I remember I mean, exactly where I was, I was sitting on a couch in, in our living room. Um, my wife was sort of over, over there and our kids were just like, you know, playing on the carpet or something. And I remember thinking, I don't actually have the energy to walk over to the carpet to play with them. Like that just seemed overwhelming to me. And I didn't have the energy or the desire to engage in a conversation with my wife. I didn't have an energy or a desire for anything. And that's just, again, to know me is just like, really? Like Paul didn't have energy to <laughs> ask a question or to play with kids. Like it just, like it's just, you would never ever describe me that way. You know, I'd never seen myself in that light. And I just remember sort of that moment, um, sort of really jumps out at me and just thinking like, holy, holy shit this is what I, like I'm literally just a lump I can't do anything I couldn't take out the trash I couldn't like if you asked me to do anything everything seemed overwhelming to me and I just I just was never I'd never experienced that before you know I'd never experienced this idea that like everything is overwhelming what is Ruth Ann saying at this point what is she like she's obviously no so Ruth Ann is your wife what is she yeah. saying at this point about uh she's obviously noticing personality changes what what is the what is the conversation with her is there you know, she also speaking to, um, to Richard or getting some direction from your DO, the, the osteopath yeah, in yeah. terms of, um, what care might look like. One of the things I think is so important for any teacher, which is why, you know, so grateful that you had this osteopath who was able to sort of predict your future is that you, if you can understand what's ahead of you, you won't misinterpret your experience while you're there. And I yes. would imagine that if Ruthann was completely in the dark, like she had no, she would be like, what the hell's wrong with this guy? Why is he, or was there, I mean, I'm assuming there was, you know, quite a bit of compassion, but what is, what is happening there in terms of your dynamic with her and your dynamic with the kids? Are the kids observing changes? Are they, I mean, maybe they are yeah. maybe a squeak too young at four, but yeah. So I think the kid one's an easier one to answer. So the kids were too young at the time. We'll, I think when we go a little further into it in terms of what this thing was like three years in, and I'm still struggling with a lot of concussion symptoms, my yeah. kids would definitely know a lot of that. And, th and there's yeah. a, there's a story to be told there, which I'll, I'll come back to in a yeah, bit. Yeah. We'll shelf that important. for a moment. Yeah. Cause okay. they, cause they, they certainly had an awareness of it as they got older. And we've done, I think we've done a, you know, we've tried to certainly do a, a good job of sort of, um, spinning that into something positive for the kids. You'd have to interview my kids that are really to really find out and, and, you know, interview them in 10 years, maybe on it. But, um, I think Ruthann and I've talked with this a lot. So I would say that the greatest gift that Ruthann gave me during this time, I mean, understand where Ruthann's at. She's just had her fourth baby in four years. Um, she's married to a high octane husband who, you know, works a lot and trains a lot and sort of lives at a high pace. But I was certainly when Ruthann needed me, I was available. And when she and I, I had the energy to dive in, you know, sort of when I was needed. And then suddenly, all of a sudden, um, she's now dealing with the normal challenges that come of having your fourth kid in four years. And then all of a sudden, it's almost like you now have a fifth person to take care of. And so I can only imagine how overwhelming that would have felt. Um, and I think 
maybe almost more urgently than that, you've just lost a partner in crime. So you've lost someone that can like hold a baby for an hour while you go take the other kid and bathe them. You just think of the logistics of sort of four kids under the age of four or four and under, right? I think our eldest was four. Um, I think for her, it was almost like overwhelm over, holy shit, like who's going to do these tasks that Paul does? I just knowing my wife the way she's very practical. She's like a, you know, an amazing military leader. Like she's, she's a, like a logistical wizard. Her first thought was probably like, okay, we have to solve the first problem, which is like, and that, and that's actually amazing motherhood instincts too, right? Like sort of like first yeah. priority is like, like, okay, I have to take on this much more parenting now. How do I do that? Um, she was a hundred percent very worried about me and very worried about my mental state and all of those things. But I think her first priority was like, okay, I got to make sure that the kids are going to be okay. And I think we, we've talked about this a lot. The greatest gift that, I mean, I, I get emotional about it only because I'm so thankful. The greatest gift that she gave me during that time was she never made me feel guilty for what a bag of shit I was. Like in terms of like how little I could actually help with the family. Because you were because, moving at the time too, weren't you? you yeah, were, yeah, that's right. We were, yeah. we had this, we had this move back to Toronto scheduled from like months earlier. So she single handedly took care of four kids, packed up our entire house, got the new house we were moving into. Like she did all of this. Whereas we had this plan that of course I was going to be heavily involved in all of that. You know, I had a couple of weeks of work booked off. Right. So I never really went back to work after the concussion. I, I tried a little bit. I, I sort of dabbled in it. And then I had this long period booked. And basically this entire time, maybe it was actually eight weeks, whatever it was from the concussion until we actually moved, um, Ruth Ann just did everything. And so her greatest gift to me was she just picked up the load that I would have otherwise carried for the family and she did it, which I'm eternally grateful for. And that's just so who she is. Like she's the ultimate sort of team player and um, just, I mean, I mean, there's this, this thing, you know, just the strongest human being in the universe kind of thing. And in terms of what she could do. So I would say if I look back upon that time, I don't think at that stage we were having, you know, deep dive chats about my well-being and my future life. I just don't think it was more like there's more urgent things to do, which is take care of our four kids and get us ready for this move and take care of life. And her gift to me was, okay, I'll do your part too, you know, which I'm, which I'm really, you know, to this day, so grateful for, because had she either forced me into saying, you have to do this. I just wouldn't have been able to. So that's what have led to like fights and marital strife, or it would have, you know, injured me more. Or had she said, um, okay, fine, I'll do it. But, and then, you know, sort of started like the list of all the reasons, you know, why I'm going to owe her later or something like that, that just would have been very bad. So yeah. she's a, she's a total champ for that. Um, but I think the net result, and she and I have talked candidly about this, I think in terms of like taking care of like four kids, and getting ready for a move and then picking up all the slack of your, you know, now sort of incompetent husband. And I was incompetent. I just couldn't actually do, you know, what was required of me and what our ecosystem had set up to, right? Like that's an important factor too, which I'll come back to in a second. We've been kidding. She didn't have much left over. She couldn't also be my psychotherapist and my encourager and my training coach and my driver and my, you know what I mean? Like it just, like she would have then, she wouldn't have survived. So she did, she did what she had to do, which was make sure that our family was okay. Which, which she did an awesome job of. And then it was later in sort of the concussion recovery journey that I think Ruth Ann take on, took on a much bigger role of like, wow, I'm like just like the voice of wisdom in my life, voice of encouragement, voice of rationality, voice of practicality, all that kind of stuff. She took on that role in a big way. And then, you know, my best friend Doug took on that role in a huge way. And others did too, but 
the, the two of them were just sort of, but, but in those early days to answer your question, Stephanie, no, she was just like, I got to pick up the extra slack here. So that moment, by the way, just to go back to it, I remember that moment. I remember sitting there, you know, not being able to engage with anybody, knowing I'm a lump on the log, knowing, and I just, and again, I'm not trying to be, um, I'm, I'm not being self-critical here in a way like that's literally, I just, I had nothing to give. I, I could do nothing. And just as somebody who, you know, always felt like I could sort of do most things, that was, that was such a very different feeling. And as I said to you, um, in sort of sort of our prep, and as I wrote in my sort of essay about this, um, the way that I described it was I just felt like a ship that was like unmoored from the shore. That's the image. I was just like, I used to be here and now I'm over here. So a ship unmoored from the shore, but, but I had not gone so far at sea that I couldn't see where I normally was. And so in that moment, as I looked at my four kids on the ground and I looked at sort of Ruth Ann, I just remember thinking like, um, this is not what they signed up for. You know, they signed up, you know, Ruth Ann married a high octane, high energy sort of, you know, guy. The kids are used to a high energy, high octane dad, optimistic, positive. Like I'm going to give them a great life. I'm going to give Ruth Ann a great life. That's the driving force. And I just remember thinking, I'm not that anymore. I'm now just like a, a bag of bricks. And I just remember thinking, um, okay, I used to be X, now I'm Y. They deserve better than than the new me here. So if I can't get back to who I am, there's only one solution here. We're going to wrap this up. Like we're going to, you know, Paul's going to exit stage left here because because that's not fair to Ruthann. She didn't sign up to be married to this, and the kids certainly need a better dad than I am. And so, you know, we're just going to wrap this, you know, wrap this up. And so. I don't even get emotional saying that because I, I actually, I'm really glad I had that thought. I'm not upset about it because the very next thought was, wait a second, you can't do that unless and until you've done every single thing you can to turn this thing around. So, you know, I don't know what led to, I know what led to the first thought. I think that's a very natural thought to have. I think a lot of people have had that thought of like, I used to be, you know, I used to be X, now I'm Y. If I can't get back to where I was, you know, I need to wrap this up kind of thing. That was as far as those thoughts went for me. You know, I'm super grateful, very thankful that my next thought was, wait a second here. That can't be how this story ends. Like you have to make sure you turn over every single rock or whatever metaphor you want to use, you have to do every single thing you can to get back there. But that curiosity uh, piece coming back to you, right? It's like, I have to be able to figure out and parse apart this problem, however multidimensional it is. And I have to get really curious about what are some of the ways that I can, what are some of the ways that I can move through this? And what are some of the ways that I can solve this? And there's going to be lots of failures, there's going to be lots of triumphs and all the things, everything in the middle. Um, but I think that that's... Um, I mean, part, we'll, we'll get to sort of yeah. how your, your recovery yeah. went, but I feel like that it, it would be, I'm glad that you shared that you were having those thoughts. I think it's an appropriate response, you know, at the time, given the stimulus, right? So we want to think about yeah. like the situation and it feels like at this point that maybe, you know, uh, we'll call it rock bottom or, you know, whatever you right. want to call it, where you feel like all the things that I've worked for, for the 36 years that I've been here, I have this beautiful wife, this beautiful family, this career that I love and I enjoy and I thrive and all of that seems to be taken away from me. And I can see where, how far I floated up to sea, but I still can see the shoreline. I can see where I was. Yeah. Um, and I think that that ability to say, okay, uh, I can either stay out here and continue to float aimlessly. And at the same time, 
um, I can try and figure out how to get back, how to find my way back. Yeah. 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 No, no. I, I think, I think the curiosity piece and I think the, you know, sort of the honesty piece, this idea of like, um, I think a lot of times we tell ourselves things just to sort of, again, you, you seek comfort, not truth. And I think if you sort of go the truth route, which again, sounds cliche, but I think it's an important thing to sort of wrap our heads around. I don't know. I just, I think I, I think in that moment, it would have been very comfortable to just say, okay, I'll just wrap this up. Like I'm not going to get back there as opposed to wait a second here. Like, is that the right answer? Is that the optimal answer? Is that actually truth? Is that actually, am I being honest with myself? Or is there another afraid? answer? Yeah. Am I afraid of it? Yeah. Like all those things. So yeah. like, I, it's so funny because I, I remember later thinking about this and the only thing I can, so I think a lot about my dad and I think in terms of like how I was wired and how he's wired and sort of the example I had. And my mom's the same way, by the way, you know, she's not this way with work or exercise or anything, but just in terms of my mom was just so committed to sort of, you know, raising people with high character. Like she was just my mom's standards. And I, you know, I said earlier, I married a woman who held me to really high standard that was certainly raised by one too. Um, and so my whole life, my mom was just always really big on uh, my brother, my sister and I sort of like having you know, strong character. Like it was always just like, you have to do the right thing, even when it's uncomfortable. That was something that was just like, there was no, I remember saying to my parents growing up, you know, like I'm doing way better than a lot of the other kids, you know? And it was sort of like, that's not the standard. You know, I remember my mom saying like, don't ever compare yourself to people who are worse than you compare yourself to people who are better than you always strive to get better. You know, and my mom meant that, you know, not just like be a better football player. She meant like morally, like from a character standpoint, like integrity. how, yeah. yes, integrity. So I just, and I remember this is like a silly story, but I think it's like an, a, you know, it certainly helped frame that. I remember being in high school and I was, you know, so committed to football and so interested in sort of trying to play college football in the U.S. and all that. But I wasn't I wasn't big. I mean, I wasn't probably even designed to necessarily play football. Um, and I remember a bunch of people being like, you're you're not going to make it like you're too small. You know, like I was, you know, 160 something pounds or whatever, you know, and it's like you got to get up to 180, 185 if you want teams to look at you. If you're, and you're a running back, I'm 5'10". Um, and, uh, I remember sort of thinking, I remember getting the advice from some people around me, like you should go do steroids. You should think your lift. Like I was very strong. I lifted weights all the time and I was pound for pound, incredibly strong, you know? And it was like, yeah, but you need to get bigger. You're just not, you're a naturally sort of lean guy. And so I remember sort of getting advice being like, you should go do steroids, gain 20 pounds, you know, that sort of thing. That's how, that you're only going to hit your goals if you do that. And I remember sort of being told that. And, you know, as a desperate 16 year old who really wants to sort of do that, I remember thinking, okay, like I got to think about this. Like, is that my route? Like, this is the goal. I want to hit my goal. And so again, I did, I did a deep dive on my soul as a 16 year old. And funnily enough, when I look back upon that, my thought process was similar to, you know, fast, you know, 20 years later, which was, hmm have I done every single thing I can to actually become the best football player that I can, you know, or am I just picking the easy route? And I remember thinking, you know what, Paul, uh, I'm not going to say no to this, but go do every single thing you can first see how far you can get just on your own, like just through work and smart work and diligent work and all that kind of stuff. And then, and then let's come back to this sort of discussion. So as a 16 year old, I remember sort of having that conversation myself and I was like, nope. And I just sort of recommitted myself to like, okay, how can I, how can I train better? Okay. I, you know, I, take a tire and tie it to my back and I'd sprint up and down hills at Adams Park, by the way, in Scarborough, in case you want to go back. It's there. <laughs> it's a really steep hill, you know, and I was eating Joe Eater shakes and I like whatever it was that I, I was like, okay, I'll work out three times a day. Like I'll go to, I'll go to school at five 30 in the morning and before the gym opens, like before the school gym opens and I'll work out there. Like I'll just, whatever it takes, I have to do because 
It's only when you've done every single thing you can possibly do and you failed, then we can talk about cheating. That was sort of a mentality. So, you know, I, I had that sort of framework in my mind from that conversation with myself when I was 16. And I think it reminds me a lot of sort of how I felt when I was like, holy shit, this thing happened. You're a bag of bricks. You're like, you're nothing. Like you are a shadow of what you were before. At 36, you are suddenly a shadow of what you were before, and you are not going to be able to fulfill your obligations as a husband and as a father. So just wrap it up. I'm so glad the next thought was, wait a second, before you land at just wrap it up, you know, you better go and do every single thing you can. So that was, you know, and I, I can't take credit for that. You know, uh, you and I talked about this. I had a really interesting conversation with Matthew Walker about this. Matthew Walker, you know, author of um, Why We Sleep who's a neuroscientist and we had a really uh, several really interesting conversations about my concussion year years after it happened. And when I told him this story, he humbled me so much. He, you know, he, he, he's a super sweet guy and he said it in a very lovely way, but it was, it was very humbling because his response to that story was, um, wow, Paul, how fortunate you are that you were born or given that wiring. So it sort of just reminded me like I was given that. So yeah, I'm hence the reason why I'm sort of grateful to have you know, been, been blessed with that. And I, that was, that was not the TSN turning point, by the way, that was sort of like, it wasn't even really the lowest point. It was just a point in time that sort of helps articulate um, just how I felt. I would actually say what occurred after that was almost harder because what occurred after that was, and what really turned into, to be quite honest, not to be discouraging to people, what turned into like a, almost a two to three year journey um, was, um, like just how badly I'd been injured, you know, cause that was, I was so apathetic that I couldn't do anything except sort of sit in a log. But then it's almost like you try to then come back to real life cause you have to. And I had to come back into real life. And that's when it really hit me of how badly I was injured. Does that make sense? It's almost like I wasn't doing anything for, so I spent about six to eight weeks of doing basically next to nothing. I had moments. I actually did have to go to work at one point. I remember having to do a sentencing submission. Like I did things at times, but like could barely get through them. But but it was that first to six, eight weeks, I was just sort of, like I said, a, a lump in the log, a bag of bricks, whatever metaphor you want to use. But it was after that, that I, we moved back to Toronto at that point in time. And then I actually had to like start life again. And that's when I think it actually got almost exponentially harder because now I was trying to function in the world, but I had lost the ability to do so. Yeah. And I think the assumption there is six to eight weeks, I've barely done anything. Like I should be completely fine given my, you know, metabolic and, you know, my, my, fitness history and, you know, my, maybe, you know, as, as Matt was saying, you know, maybe your genetic, you know, your wiring to maybe seek out dopamine and to be able to, yeah. you know, to be able to chase goals and actualize on them. Six to eight weeks is kind of a nice, kind of a long time. That's yeah, right. It's kind of a nice runway. Like it's I like, did my time. I should be better yeah, now. Yeah. Right. yeah I rested. Yeah, yeah. I did my part. Like, yeah, you almost, I mean, and every athlete makes this deal with the devil, right? Like, okay, fine. I'll take the day off working out, but tomorrow my back will feel better or tomorrow my shoulder, right? Like we all do this, right? Um, so yes, you're totally right. I think, I think that's like, I'd never thought about it that way, but you're right. I think in my mind, I was kind of like, yeah, okay. Like I've slowed myself down more than I ever could. Okay. Now I'd, I'd better get better. And then I wasn't like, I wasn't even close to better. So we have these, we have this sort of immediate time, the six to eight week period after the concussion. What are some of the ongoing, um, we'll say handicaps, triggers, yeah. things that you're dealing with now when you have to go back to the real world? What does that yeah. look like? Yeah. So, um, so one of the big ones was fatigue. It was huge, huge, huge fatigue. Um, 
And I remember um, I couldn't exercise, which for me, you know, obviously like a, a bit of a red flag because I'd have ex- exercised, you know, every day of my life since I was 10. What and, would happen uh, when you would exercise? I would get really lightheaded. So if I got my heart rate above 95, I would start to see stars. So I couldn't exercise. Um, I would try different things and I'd have like limited success. Like I would try something and then I'd be like, oh, I feel fine. And then the next day or later that day, I'd feel really nauseous or tired or I'd be lightheaded or um, so exercise became really hard. Um, I had um, just fatigue in general. Things just became wildly taxing to me um, that otherwise weren't even on the radar before. Like what? Um, talking to people, talking to people became really, really taxing. That was really hard. Um, leaving the house. That was hard. <laughs> um, I'm laughing only because it's just like, again, you know, to sort of know me and that I was very kind of like ADL is what we would call like activities of daily living, right? It's yes. like getting dressed and brushing your teeth and, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah. noise yeah. was a really, really, really big one. Um, and probably continues to be, you know, almost a decade later, I'd say that's the, you know, the thing that probably lingers the most still even now, almost a decade later would be noise. I, I manage it so much better and for a whole, a, a bunch of different ways I can outline for you when, whenever you're ready. Yeah. Um, but so I remember having dinner, we went out for dinner one night with friends and I just remember being at a restaurant I couldn't handle. Like I couldn't handle actually sitting there at a restaurant because as you know, I mean, you think about this only. You sort of think about this only once you start to realize it, but there's so much background noise at a restaurant, right? And if you don't have the ability to listen to background noise. So I remember having to leave the dinner table and just having to leave the meal. And I couldn't really understand why. Um, so noise would make me so irritable that I wanted to scream. Um, and it was background noise that I didn't even know existed before. Oh, lights and screens were wild to me. So if you were trying to show me something on your phone and you like, you know, swiped your screen. Like if you're like, Hey Paul, look at these pictures of my, Oh, sorry. I gotta go back. That's my cottage. This is my, I would literally want to stab your eyes. Like I'd be like, what the hell are you doing? Like it was literally like you, it was like you were punching me in the head. It was so weird that I I couldn't follow something. I don't think I've been to a movie theater since actually. I don't think I've, I don't, I'd have to think about that, but maybe, maybe once. Yeah. I think I've been to a movie theater once in a decade. Because that was, I was just like, I, I can't do screens. So just someone showing me something on their screen. Well, a movie theater seems like the worst because there's the noise. There's right. the, yeah, there's all the, the things that you The movement of the screen, all yeah. that. I'm sure I could handle it now, but I haven't tried. Um, and then oddly enough, the emotional aspect of things. Like just this, this, this crazy combination of just apathy and sadness. And then another big one that came along was anxiety. So that was a really, really, really interesting one. And now we're segueing a little bit, I think, into sort of like this next stage, which was like this next two years, which was I now have to come back and deal with real life. So I come back. Um, I was actually in the midst of a planned career change to leave law for a year and to go into business for a year. I'm going to um, we came back to Toronto to help my father um, run our family business. And so I'm now moving back to Toronto. I'm going to take a year off law. This was all pre-planned. And now I have to go ahead and do it. And I just remember um, it was so fascinating because so many of the things that my life required of me, I couldn't do. But I, again, I didn't know I couldn't do them until I would fail at them. So one example is driving. Driving became like running a marathon to me. It was like if I had a two-hour drive, I was done. Like I had to sleep after a two-hour drive, which is not great when you have a two-hour drive to a business meeting 
like the family business is in a rural setting at stone quarry. So I always had to leave Toronto to go to stuff. And so I would drive somewhere and then I couldn't figure out what the hell was wrong with me because I was completely drained. So driving became this like overwhelming activity for me and I'd have to like rest before I could drive back. So that was really crazy. Um, and then I start to have like really, really hot, like strong bouts of anxiety. And again, and I know you did this on purpose. If you juxtapose that with who I was just a few months earlier, it was a guy who could literally walk into a courtroom. I mean, I had create people, conflict. Right, yeah, like, yeah. like, like seek conflict. And in fact, yeah. when conflict arose, like, I mean, I'd literally, you know, I had people say, I hate this crown attorney. I'm going to kill you. And I would be like, very well. <laughs> Let me write down your name. Like, 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 I just, I literally, when someone would want to, like, a high anxiety, high conflict situation, my response was like, very well. Like, this is, this is excellent. Let's get, like, let me put my gloves on. Like, I'm ready to go. I was, I was energized by conflict. Not only was I like able to handle it, I was energized by it. And then suddenly, um, I, 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 it's so weird, but, um, things that I didn't even know could be anxiety producing or anxiety producing. Like parking your car, like in a green pea, and then like that became anxiety producing to me because I was like, I'll, I'll forget where my car is because I was having a lot of memory issues. And I was like, and then I'll be lost in a parking lot. And then I'll have to like call Ruth Ann to come get me. Or I won't be able to find a parking spot before this meeting. And then I'll wander around and I'll miss the meeting. How early should I show up for this? Um, I was losing things a lot. Like I was really, really like scatterbrained and I had never lost things before. Like I used to, I mean, I memorized people's phone numbers. I could sort of always knew where stuff was, but I was like, I lost my glasses. I lost my keys. I lost, like, again, we've talked about this a little bit, not quite yet on the podcast, but in a lot of ways, I think what I experienced was advanced aging. Like that's the best way I think I can describe it is there was this massive change and I went from being 36 to 86, but instead of having 50 years to adjust to it, I had, you know, a millisecond. Six to eight weeks. You know, yeah. yeah. I literally just went from 36 to 86 overnight. And the yeah. way I sort of described that period of my life was, um, you know, this is sort of the framework that I always thought about, you know, after the fact, I guess, was every day was a journey of unpleasant surprises. Every day was this journey to, and the reason I'm putting my hands this way was, was like a, it was like a, 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 a reverse funnel, like an inverse funnel where rather than going through life as a, you know, rambunctious, ambitious, driven, energetic, whatever, 35, 36 year old, who's like, man, like today I got to wrestle my kid and tomorrow I'll bike with my kid. And then I tried this new case at work and now I want to start this business. Like, you know, I always had this mentality of look, life is like, it's just like the opportunities for me in life just seemed like they were expanding every day at that stage, which is great. That's what you want in life, right? You want this idea of like every day there's a new opportunity. And instead I had the inverse all of a sudden, every day, I had this unpleasant surprise of, holy shit, what task will I attempt today and find out that I can no longer do? What event, what situation will I be in today where I will find out that I can no longer do it? And I think in a lot of ways, as I've reflected upon this over the years, I think that's what actually aging is. I think that's what happens when you're 86 you know, or 85, whatever the number is, you're suddenly like, wow, I can't drive myself to my own doctor's appointments anymore. Or now I actually have to call someone to pick the heavy thing of growth, like that 40 pound bag of, you know, whatever, you know, whatever the, the well salt or the, the, the salt for my driveway, whatever it is, you're suddenly like, whoa, I can't do this anymore. I think that's a really hard part of aging. And I experienced that, um, as a 36 year old and it was awful. I, I, I literally hated every single second of it. Um, it's such a discouraging way to live. 
you know, driving became this massive problem. Being out in social situations became a massive problem. I was always worried about light and noises. Um, I was always like, I can't go to this place unless I know, like, I'd get in, you know, you get invited to someone's house for dinner and I'm like, oh, I can't go. Like, I don't know what the setting's going to be. Like, this is where Ruth Ann had to really sort of do a lot of work to protect me because that's a, like, it's hard to sort of say this to stuff. You also don't want to go to somebody's house and be like, hey, you know, you need Dim to Dim the lights and shut up. Paul. Yeah, like, you, don't, you can't <laughs> yeah. do That's right. Like, that's not really yeah. a fun dinner party for some people. So yeah, yeah. that was really hard. And it's especially hard with young kids. And um, I mean, I could give you an endless, I could give you an endless list, but just, just think about how many situations in your life have like background noise, which is essentially everything other than sitting quietly in your you know bedroom. How many have, you know, lights coming in from different directions or screens you have to look at? So, I, you know, just think of like, think of every, you know, diner you've gone to or takeout place you've gone to and how like there's, you know, CP24 playing on the TV screen as you're ordering your shawarma. But you've probably done that this week. That background noise and that screen playing while I'm trying to order was like someone punching my head repeatedly. It would be like sticking my head under water kind of thing and saying, try ordering now. Like that's how hard it felt to me. And that is just daily life. Finding a parking spot on a busy street at five o'clock at night when there's a parking spot there, but you kind of have to reverse park and there's a guy behind you who looks angry. And then there's a parking sign and you can't decipher. Is it, can I park here after three or can I not? You know, like think of any situation where you're trying to like simultaneously comprehend something, do something physical and something mental, which is basically every day of life. That would be like a nine out of 10 in terms of difficulty for me at the time. Whereas before I'd be doing that, like, wouldn't even think twice about it. Um, so just all these different things just became these, these massively overwhelming tasks. And then, um, I had a ton of social anxiety, like a ton. Um, what did that look like? I had this thing, um, called consonant confusion where you start to like confuse your words if they start with the same letter. Um, so you'd say public instead of painting, something like that. Like they both start with a P, but you would just, so I was messing up my words a lot and I still do it a little bit now, but you know, that might just be a sign of being you know 45 as opposed to a concussion. I don't know. What was interesting about that, again, this goes back to this, this framework that I had of, I was unmoored from the shore, but not so far at sea that I couldn't, I was always aware of my deficiencies and that really adds a unique layer to this conundrum because if you're unaware of your deficiency, you're not troubled by it. You know, I think Ricky Gervais has this really good line. He says, you know, being stupid is like being dead. It only impacts other people. Right. You know, right. I, I might be paraphrasing here, but <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, it's like ignorance is bliss, right? Yeah. Well, well, so an ignorance is bliss is actually a downstream sort of understanding of that because ignorance is bliss means you don't actually know. And so it's, it's fun. Like you don't know that you smell, so it doesn't bother you. Right. So it'd be way worse to go to a thing and know that you do. Right. Or whatever the case may be. So, right. Yes, for me, I've often said, you know, with my head injury, with the concussion, it, it almost, you know, from my standpoint, it, I certainly don't wish for this, but yes, if you don't know, you're just living in your new reality, but you're not suffering through it every single day. Everyone around you sort of is, right? They're the ones sort of looking at you being like, oh, wow, that guy's really changed. He's really different. But for me, with the concussion, I was always aware of how deficient I was, but I couldn't do anything about it. Like, I couldn't seem to fix it. And as I said, for the first couple of years, I was... I was unpleasantly surprised every day with a new thing that I was deficient in. So it was like this, this combination of trying to live a, you know, a productive life and trying to make sure that my new life, you know, you're always trying to compare it to your old life, right? You're always saying like, I used to do this. Like how many times do you hear people say, well, I used to be able to do this. Like, so I think it's just a natural human thing. 
Yeah. And I, my, my question there is how do you, how do you reconcile that? Right. So how do you reconcile that? What is maybe more of an egoic comparison for who you are now versus who you were? And, you know, maybe your love or lust for achievement is now like any, anything that you're doing, you know, you mentioned if your heart rate was over 95, you would get lightheaded or nauseous. Right. So any type of progress, um, can almost seem like insignificant and inconsequential versus what you used to be able to do. Right. Was there that, yes. did you have that kind of dialogue? Yeah, I well? did. I, I did. I want to come back to that one. Cause that's an important one. Cause I actually had to find a way to make that work for me as opposed to against me. Cause if you don't learn to get a grip on that, you're screwed. Yeah. Like think about that for a second, right? Like if, if we actually take this, so, so I'm de- talking about this framework from a concussion standpoint, but I think it, it, it's just the same dynamic that's happening for a number of different reasons for lots of different people. Like you don't have to have a concussion to experience what I'm describing. It's the same thing as aging, right? So all of a sudden it's like, wow, it's different now that I'm 65 or There's 70. There's a loss. Anyone who's lost anything. Right. There's a regression of something, right? Yeah. And then I think it's the exact same framework that, um, you know, I've talked to my wife about this lots. If you're, you know, you, you're postpartum or you're, you know, are you the same woman after you've had kids as you are before? You obviously, you know, Stephanie, in your work with, you know, talking about, you know, menopause, like there are changes that are occurring to you. You can't outrun father time, of course. And so I think it's very, very important. And, and I think this was sort of for me, and we're going to come to this obviously in due course, but this, we're, we're giving all this information of how low it was and what was actually happening, but this story does end on a positive note because it ends with this notion and this mantra that as you learn to cope with a concussion, you are actually giving an op- being given an opportunity to learn to cope with life. You are being given an opportunity to be like, holy shit, how do I deal with an ever-changing existence? Which is, by the way, is life. Like, welcome to life. Right. Like, life is always changing. And you're always changing and the world around you is always changing. I mean, we've just gone through obviously a massive global change where people who could adapt and be resilient did well. And obviously it's, it's much more complex than that, but adaptability and resilience are essential, right? So the concussion in a lot of ways forced me to learn how to cope with life in ways, um, that you know, I had, I had to in order to sort of survive. And then the goal is, can you go through these and ultimately thrive? All right, friends, we're going to stop it right here. Tune in next week for the second part, part two of two in the story. And now that we've really shown you what, how vulnerable really we all can be to something like a traumatic brain injury or any type of trauma, Paul is going to be sharing uh, in detail some of the frameworks um, and healing strategies that he used for his own healing. And I hope it will inspire you. So stay tuned for next week. Mm-hmm.